0: Hi, this is Dean Reek, host of Keep and Bear Radio. In this podcast, we discuss getting Senate Bill 215 to Governor DeWine's desk, but when we recorded it, we were still waiting for him to sign the bill. I can tell you now that at about 4.50 p.m. on Monday, March 14, 2022, Governor Mike DeWine signed Senate Bill 215, which will make it legal to carry a concealed handgun without a license in Ohio, 91 days after signing. This is a landmark victory for Buckeye Firearms Association and a big step forward for gun rights in the Buckeye State. Now, on to the podcast. From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio. Fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. This very moment, as I record this on March 11, 2022... Ohio Governor DeWine has a bill on his desk to bring permitless carry to the Buckeye State. We are one pen stroke away from completing a journey that began 20 years ago when Buckeye Firearms Association volunteers first began improving Ohio's repressive gun laws. It's been a long journey and a lot of hard work, and during those two decades, We have changed law after law to make Ohio one of the best states for gun owners in the country. The brass ring has always been concealed carry without a license, and at any moment, that vision could become reality. By the time you're listening to this, the bill may already be signed, which starts the 91-day clock for the act to become official Ohio law. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Sexton, BFA's Legislative Affairs Director. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. It's good to be with you. So, Rob, what have you been up to? Uh, Doing any hunting now that the weather's getting nice?
1: I have been able to find a little bit of time, you know, I, uh, I was down in Wilmington, Ohio on a pheasant hunt with our friends at Cherry Bend Pheasant Farm, and uh, I've got a quail hunt scheduled for uh, about two weeks from now up at Elkhorn Lake up in Bucyrus area, so I like to do some bird shooting, and I'm finally going to get a chance to do that with the legislature settling down a bit. Well, yeah, settling down for the moment. It seems like that'll
0: last one or two days and then it will explode over something else. So don't uh, <laughs> That's right. Don't uh, count your chickens, Rob. No. So Rob, uh, obviously the the big story is constitutional carry, permitless carry, or my preferred term, license, optional carry. This has been the news. We now, as we're recording this, we have a bill that's moved through the House, moved through the Senate and has been set on the governor's desk. And we are recording this on Friday, March 11th. So the bill has not been signed yet, but we believe it will be signed. And I just want to take some time in this podcast to talk about how we got to where we are. We've never been here before. We have never had a bill like this, this big, on constitutional carry that has gone all the way through the process and has done so in such an efficient manner, in, in my opinion, and has been set on the governor's desk and where we're just basically sitting here waiting for it to be signed.
1: Yeah, you're right, Dean. It's been a heck of a journey to get here. Uh, I think we're going to talk about some of the specifics during this podcast about, you know, the way that we laid this all out. Um, and, you know, everything didn't go exactly according to plan. But the fact that we had a plan sure made a difference when things got interesting. Well, you know what they say
0: about uh, plans in the military, that uh, no strategy survives contact with the enemy. So it's the same with anything, with legislation or anything else. You have a plan and you just start working the plan and you deal with all the crap that happens as it happens. But, you know, before we get to that, I, I really think, Rob, that this story goes back about 20 years. Yes. Buckeye Firearms Association Has been around about 20 years, and back in 2002 there was a House Bill, 274, and it was on concealed carry. And for those listeners who remember back that far, uh, number one, that means you're old. Uh, Number two, (laughs) that means you probably remember what Ohio was like back then. Our laws were pretty bad. You could not carry a firearm concealed. That's right. It was illegal. And a lot of other things were really goofy about the laws at that time. So we were working to get a bill passed to allow for concealed carry. Now, open carry has always been legal. It's not in the law. So if it's not in the law, if it's not specifically made illegal, it's legal. But concealed carry has been uh, illegal. And House Bill 274 came along. It was passed by the Ohio General Assembly, but uh, Bob Taft was governor, and he vetoed it. And at that time, uh, that, that was it. That, that killed it for about two years. And in 2004, we came back with another bill. This was H.B. 12 for concealed carry, and we did finally get that signed into law. That is when concealed carry, licensed concealed carry, began in Ohio. Now, we knew that that law was not perfect, it was far from perfect. We knew that this was the beginning of a long process of dragging Ohio, kicking and screaming into a new era of respect for the Second Amendment. But we had a strategy, and the strategy was simple. Let's get a law passed. Let's just get a law passed that allows people to carry concealed. Because there was a long-standing tradition of fear of so-called hidden guns— And that had resulted in a prohibition against concealed carry in Ohio. So we just needed to get a law passed to get our foot in the door so that we could start to work on these laws. And that was what was going to be at HB 12. And once we got that passed, people could start carrying and we'd see how things worked out. They were predicting. The opponents were predicting. The sky was going to fall. You know, blood in the streets, urban warfare, apocalypse. The four horsemen were going to ride. The whole thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, dogs and cats living together. <laughs> uh, it was. It was bad. Uh, that when we had people going apoplectic over this, but we knew if we could just get a law passed, even if it wasn't perfect, even even if it was not written as well as we wanted, that that would be the starting block. And we could start this race uh, over several years to get the law uh, changed in many other ways. We knew that Ohio residents would prove themselves responsible. And we uh, we started working on it. Since that time, BFA has passed preemption. That was to make the gun laws uniform throughout the state. Again, listeners probably remember the patchwork of laws. Every place you'd go, the laws would be different. Preemption made the laws uniform throughout the state and prevented local, you know, cities, townships, villages from passing their own laws that were more strict than Ohio law. We closed the what we called the media access loophole. Journalists at that time were looking at who had a license because they could look it up; they could get a whole list, and they were publishing it in the newspapers, right. which was absolutely insane. So we passed a law to prevent that and close the media access loophole. We passed Castle Doctrine so that people in their home or in their car had an initial presumption that they could act in self-defense. No one ever had that before. We also worked on making the concealed carry law a lot more user-friendly. We changed tons of things. We clarified the rules for transporting firearms. Uh, We made a change to allow people to pick up or drop off their kids in a school safety zone. You couldn't even drop off your kid if you had a firearm. We decriminalized concealed carry in private parking garages. This was wild. If a a parking garage was not a public parking garage, uh, they could basically ban carry there or ban firearms, and you couldn't even park. We changed the law to make it legal to carry a firearm in an unlocked glove compartment or a console, we made it legal to carry in establishments where alcohol is served. Do you remember this? I mean, you could not even go into an Applebee's because they served alcohol. You could not carry anywhere alcohol was being served, even if you weren't drinking. That's right. So we called that, that was generally referred to as restaurant carry. We made it illegal for employers to ban guns stored in employee vehicles and company property. This used to be a big problem because. You'd want to carry when you're out of the house to and from work, but what do you do when you get to work? The employer used to be able to say, well, you can't have a gun in your car or anywhere on company property, and it essentially prevented you from carrying any time during the day. Right. We changed that. A big change we made over the years, we shifted the burden of proof so that prosecutors had to prove you were actually guilty of a crime. I'm, I'm laughing when I'm saying this because it's so ridiculous prosecutors would have to prove you were guilty of a crime in cases of self-defense. Ohio was actually the only state in the entire country where you had to prove yourself innocent. And Ohio prosecutors fought us every step of the way on that. Recently, of course, we removed the duty to retreat, and that's a new law that some people refer to as stand your ground. Rob, this just scratches the surface. We have a page on the website that talks about all the legislative changes that we've made over the years, But all of it began back in 2002 when we were first working on just being able to carry a firearm with a license. So we kept coming back again and again and again, changing and improving the laws. And it all started way back when. And it opened the door and began to prove that Ohio residents were responsible so that now what we've done Uh, There's a term called the Overton window. I'm sure that you're familiar with that, Rob. Yes. So we've moved the Overton window from a point where people would say, we're not sure that you can trust anybody carrying a firearm, to the point where people are now saying, even opponents are saying, wow, the licensing uh, process is really great. We love that license. It works (laughs) so well. You know, why would we want to change that? So we moved from... You know, we're afraid of people carrying to—we want people to carry with a license. That's a big shift, and it took time to make that shift. And so here we are, Rob, 2022, and we are waiting for the governor to sign a bill into law that will essentially remove the licensing process. And if you're qualified to carry a gun, you
1: can carry a gun with or without that license. That's right. It's really been a remarkable journey and a real credit to Buckeye Firearms Association volunteers. Just, you know, as you tick off these different things, just kicking the door open another another foot wider, another foot wider, and another foot wider in our overall pursuit, which of course is to see Ohio honor the words in its own constitution.
0: I think people forget, honestly, Rob, I forget sometimes what it used to be like. I forget... Sometimes, you know, living in Columbus, competing in bullseye, and I couldn't have—there was a pistol that I wanted. I forget the model, but it had the magazine in front of the trigger, and it was something from overseas. I couldn't get that to shoot bullseye. It was just a twenty-two, but it was illegal in Columbus. Now, you know, I could shoot it somewhere outside of Columbus, uh, but, but I couldn't own that in Columbus where I lived at the time. That's what the laws used to be
1: like. One thing I would point out, Dean, you go all the way back to 2002 and even before, there were always people who opposed the incremental approach, right? It's all or nothing. We're not going to ask the government's permission to carry a firearm. But the approach that BFA has taken throughout all this is we're just going to keep proving over and over again, gun owners are not to be feared. And the more you show the regular citizenry that, the more accepting they've been. And I think the doorstep we're sitting on now vindicates the strategy that we have employed because constitutional carry is now at our fingertips. Uh, And and I think uh, BFA volunteers should be really proud of the work they've done.
0: There's a saying that a law is downstream of culture. And that's really true. You know, it's, it's not enough to just say, here's what we want. You have to have the support of the public. Because that's who votes, that's who puts people into office, those office holders represent the public, and the thinking has to change in society. So, you know, there was a time when there was no concealed carry anywhere in the country. It had to start somewhere. We had to start changing people's minds. I remember when, you know, so-called Stand Your Ground first came, I think it was in Florida, where it was the modern Stand Your Ground. They were moving the duty to retreat they were panicking, people around the country. I mean, they were changing their vacation plans because they were afraid to go to Florida. They thought, you know, if I, if I get into a debate over a parking spot, I'm going to get shot. You know, don't go to Florida. There were billboards telling people to stay out of Florida. It was absolutely insane. And, and here we are today where there are, what, 35, 36 or more states that have laws like that. That's right. You know, you, they, these are dominoes. And the, there has to be a first domino and a second domino and a third domino, and they begin to fall. And that's what we're seeing now with permitless carry in all of these states. And I think it's worth mentioning at this point that we just found out yesterday that Alabama has finally signed into law a uh, permitless carry bill. The governor signed it, and they are now the 22nd state where you can carry concealed without any kind of license or permit. I was kind of hoping that would be Ohio, so we might be number 23, but now there's another state, and we're very quickly, Rob, getting to the point where uh, about half of the country has this rule, and it, and it shows what can happen when you start changing people's minds, and there's a tipping point here somewhere. And uh, eventually, I, you know, I think that this is going to make it easier for all the other states to start considering this.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And, and of course, the other news on this front is that Indiana has now sent a constitutional carry bill to its governor, right? So the race is on, Governor DeWine. Are we going to be 23? Are we going to be 24, right? So I'm rooting for 23.
0: Yeah, in Indiana, I don't want to go too far down this particular rabbit hole, but they, they had a real problem out there. There was a Republican... Who I guess from what I've told is a Republican in name only, a Rhino, basically a Democrat, but has a you know one issue where they're sort of more Republican. Blocked the bill last session, tried to block the bill again this session. Basically, just wouldn't let it come up for a vote. And are you familiar with the with what they did out there? They basically have a process where. They have a committee, and they can take language from a bill, jam it into another bill, and just pass it, and they don't have to go back to the legislature to do that.
1: Well, it's a good thing they were able to do that because having one person block constitutional carry is obviously an enormous frustration for them. So I'm happy for them, uh, but I still hope we hit the finish line before they do. Yeah, well, 23, 24, 25, whatever we are
0: here, as long as it happens, And, and literally as we're recording this, on a Friday, March 11th. This could happen at any time. We literally, Rob, could get uh, word today. We could get word tomorrow. We could get the word on Monday. This is going to happen at any moment where the governor is going to sign this bill. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. So, Rob, yep. that, that brings us up to 2022. Let's talk about the process on the bill that we've been working on now, there have been a couple bills. bills, uh, HB 227 was one, and SB 215 was the other. Why don't you pick it up from here and talk about how we were starting to set the table in 2020 in the last legislative session, because we really wanted to hit the ground running in the current session to make this a, a, a full-on, a full-court press to get a bill like this passed.
1: Yeah, so... An interesting thought when you think back of the history of how this bill got on Mike DeWine's desk. I remember us meeting the BFA board members and me meeting downtown across the street from the state house, talking about what our legislative priorities were going to be in the upcoming session. This was February of 2020. So we were just weeks away from everything being shut down. We just didn't know at the time that's how things were going to go. But the number one goal of BFA, was can we get this out of lame duck voting because as you know too often gun bills are shunted to the very end of session at the last minute when things when mistakes can be made or sometimes you just get flat out disappointed so the task that we gave ourselves back in February of 2020 is we're going to put a game plan in place that gets this bill to the governor far in advance of the election so that we can remove some of the silly politics from the whole thing. And so that's exactly what we did, and, and that's how we got here where we are today. So we have this meeting, I believe, um, was this in
0: September of 2020, where we actually sat down uh, with the uh, with the speaker, with uh, Robert Cup, and yes. uh, with the speaker, Pro Tem. And we were basically laying out our strategy. We weren't secret about it. We
1: said, here's what we want, here's how we would like to do it. Yes, in fact, you know, I think we probably would have had that meeting a little bit earlier, but some of you may remember that the House leadership changed hands in July uh, with Speaker Householder uh, being removed from the Speaker's job. And so Robert Cupp was elected Speaker. So it took us a few weeks to get on the appointment calendar, but we actually had meetings on back-to-back days. Uh, the first meeting, as you mentioned, with Bob Cupp and uh, Speaker Pro Tim Tim Ginter, Uh, in which we laid out our goals. Uh, And then the following day with Senate President Matt Huffman uh, and Senator Terry Johnson, where we laid out the same goals. And we presented to them, you know, we'd like to get constitutional carry done this session. We'd like to get it done far in advance of really the primary election even, right? Uh, and, And, you know, we'd like to have agreement on a general game plan with you all. And so those meetings were really the pivotal part of this entire plan. You know, had we not been able to sit down with them and and hash out common ground, I don't know that we could have got where we wound up here just a week, a week ago.
0: And it wasn't just meetings with leadership. I mean, we actually, I mean, when we're looking at all the Republicans we knew were going to be involved and let's face it, Democrats pretty much across the board are going to oppose this. We knew that that's always the case in Ohio we weren't going to have support from a single Democrat that I'm aware of. So we were meeting with committee members as well. So we, you know, we were starting to line up the votes very
1: early on before this even started up with the hearings. Right. So that's a, that is a really important point for people to know, right? So there's an old saying, of course, success has a million fathers and failure is a bastard child, right? So, Now that this bill is on the governor's desk, there's all sorts of folks out there taking credit for how it got here. And to a certain extent, we're just glad it got here. But passing a bill doesn't happen by giving big speeches, uh, by testifying in front of committees, or frankly, by making videos. Passing a bill happens when you do the spade work, when you meet one-on-one with legislators so you can address their concerns, answer their questions, show them the facts, hook them up with constituents from their own districts and frankly, hold their hand from the start to the finish of the entire process. It is tireless work. And frankly, BFA folks, including me and you and Linda Walker, for example, and Larry Moore, you know, we've been down at the state Capitol again and again and again in these meetings where we work to convince people. So it's a, there's a whole lot more to passing a bill than giving a speech and this bill certainly took a lot of heavy lifting to get there. A lot of bills, in fact, I would say most bills, die in committee.
0: Bills, am, am I right, Rob, that when, when a legislator presents a bill, uh, it is going to be put into a committee and they have to have at least one hearing, the sponsor hearing. There's no requirement beyond that. So, for example, there are a lot of anti-gun bills that are out there right now, but all of them... Are dying in committee. They they have not advanced and had the hearings at all. And so you've got to work on those committee members
1: because if it doesn't get through a committee, it doesn't go anywhere. Right. Right. So, you know, it, uh, the process is meant to filter out bills, right? And so you have to get past that giant filter in order to get anything done. So for us, you know, we identified early on that uh, Senator Terry Johnson was going to carry a bill uh, in the Ohio Senate. Uh, I think we had initially some plans to have a, a, a very similar House bill, but of course, before that could materialize, House Bill 227 was introduced. You, you know, it, which was not perfect in some ways, but it became the next target, right? Because as far as we're concerned, the job is to get the bill over the finish line, and so uh, you know, we began working on House Bill 227 with the members of the committee. The bill was sent to the house government oversight committee, which is a committee full of house leadership, right? So you've got the chairman, Shane Wilkin, and then the rest of the committee is just full of leadership from the house of representatives. So it, that is a committee that deals with the toughest issues and frankly kills a lot of bills. So it was our job to start walking those committee members through house bill 227 uh, and convince them. And frankly, Uh, we were fortunate to have a chairman that we could work with uh, who wanted to know where the votes were and was, was willing to listen to us in terms of how to get there. And uh, you know, that's what, that's what ultimately resulted in house bill 227 being approved by the committee. And the other element of this, which
0: I remember, I mean, you're our lobbyist, Rob. So you're doing the bulk of that kind of work, having meetings, talking with people. I remember though, that we were preparing, information well in advance of all of this we were collecting statistics from other states we were looking at the laws in other states and how they they were constructed we were preparing talking points we were doing everything in advance so that when we were asked questions when there was any challenge any opposition that we were going to be able to meet that immediately because we were asked a lot about research for example that the you know the moms would present research to them saying one thing and we would have to analyze that and and answer it you know what how do you how do you guys respond to this and and we would need to do that so we had to do our homework and be ready when that happened because if you're in a committee and committee members are asking questions you can't take a couple of weeks to do research you got to be able to answer them when they ask the question otherwise you know, it's like uh, like you're in school and you haven't done your homework and you get an F, right? So you you got to be prepared when that question comes up.
1: Well, and that was one of the first criticisms I heard about House Bill 227 was that there were members of the committee who had questions and they needed those questions answered. So as soon as we heard that, we met with literally every Republican on the committee. We were able to answer their questions. We were able to provide research that you had mentioned that we had prepared in advance and ultimately, that led to us being able to convey to the chairman, Shane Wilkin, that the votes were there. Uh, and, and, of course, he delivered on his commitment that he would bring it to a vote before his committee. So, you know, November 1st of 2021, the Government Oversight Committee passed the bill 8 to 5, uh, which sent it onto the House floor. And uh, almost two weeks later, the full House voted 60 to 32 Uh, to pass House Bill 227. So that was sort of the first leg of how we got where we are today. And then,
0: Rob, of course, there's Senator Johnson with uh, Senate Bill 215. He had introduced this. I would say this was a cleaner bill than 227. He had taken a different approach. So we needed to start working on that. Our attitude at the time was we didn't care which bill passed. We just wanted to get a ball across the line, right? Right. So we were working on two separate bills, and uh, Senator Johnson introduced two fifteen. So we were obviously going to work on that too to see uh, where we could go with it.
1: Yeah. So you know, the one advantage to Senator Terry Johnson is he's a veteran of the state house. You know, he'd been in the house previously, and, and now you know in the Senate, uh, Senator Johnson is a legislator that actually gets bills passed about just about every session. So when you're when you're looking for sponsors for a bill you know you want to you don't just want someone who thinks like you but you want someone who thinks like you and can also get things done and i think that was the the top characteristic of senator johnson uh being the sponsor of the senate bill as you know that he's a person who's used to getting bills passed so of course we we engaged with senator johnson prior to him even introducing the bill uh and then you know the bill was sent to the Senate Veterans and Public Safety Committee, which of course, Senator Johnson was actually a member. So he was able to help us even before the committee. And I don't think it's revealing any secrets
0: here that there is some strategy involved in which committee a bill is sent to and who is on that committee and how much support you're going to have for a particular bill on a particular committee. I mean, this is not random. If people are serious about passing a bill, you make sure you get it to the right committee with the right people so that you can move the ball down the field, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look for you want to get the bill to the right committee. You want to work with a sponsor who's going to work hard on their bill, and cer- certainly Senator Johnson prioritized this bill this session. So that was that was definitely uh, part of the successful mix that we were able to have on this bill. Uh, Dean, I think before we go any farther, we got to point out that both bills dealt with the duty to notify the police officers. So you know, there have been separate legislation introduced multiple times to repeal Ohio's ambiguous or confusing language that you must promptly notify a police officer uh, when you engage with them that you're carrying. Of course, the law didn't specify, do you blurt it out before they can even say a word? Do you have to tell every single police officer that comes upon the fender bender you just have? And so, as you know, we had a lot of uneven enforcement. And the two issues really went hand in hand. If you're going to define how we can carry without a permit, you also need to define how that interaction goes. And so both bills uh, included language that shifted the burden of the duty to notify. So instead of it all being on you, the gun owner, now the police officer uh, would be able to ask. And if they did ask, then you would have to respond. But you'd no longer be caught up in sort of a gotcha situation you know, where you forgot because you were in a fender bender and a little rattled.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of really disingenuous opposition because of this, and the Fraternal Order of Police were uh, talking about how, you know, this is going to endanger police officers. There was information out there from opponents saying that, you know, there was no more duty to inform, no one's going to know who has a firearm, and all of this, all of which was just a complete lie, because what we were trying to do was simply correct this weird law that says you have to promptly notify, but no one knows what promptly means. So what is that? Is that within 30 seconds? Does it have to be your first words? Can it be within 10 minutes? I mean, people can get in trouble with this. Police officers, basically Rob, what they do is they talk to people. That's about 90% of everything that police officers do is they talk with people. Right. So we just figured, look, they're asking questions and talking with people anyway. Why can't they just do what the officer did the last time I was pulled over in my hometown because, you know, I was being a little bit of a lead foot. And the officer (laughs) walked up to my window and just said, uh, good evening. Do you have your gun with you tonight? And he made it easy. I said, yes, sir, I do. And he just said, that's fine. Uh, And then we went on with, uh, you know, a lecture on how I shouldn't be going I don't know, 37 and a 25, or whatever it is I was doing that night, uh, coming home late. Uh, and he, he was hiding next to a school and got me. So, but, but the interaction was easy because he just asked a question and I answered it. And that's what we changed the notification to. And the reason is that it makes it simple, it makes it clear. You know how to notify, you know when to notify. And the Fraternal Order of Police opposed this. And let's just be honest, they oppose every bill we have ever sponsored. They, uh, for whatever reason, are not the police officers on the street, but the Fraternal Order of Police Leadership. Rob, what is it about the FOP that, that makes them want to oppose every single bill that we want to pass?
1: You know, I wish I knew the answer to that. You know, because, you know, BFA volunteers, gun owners in general, you know, we've got a lot of respect for the tough job that police officers do. Uh, And and we even heard police officers rank and file members testify in front of that committee that the duty to notify needed to be fixed, that it was confusing. But the FOP, of course, didn't budge. Uh, And I think to your point, Dean, the FOP has opposed every pro-gun bill over the last 25 years, I would say. And so it was... Really hard to listen to their testimony in these committees over the last six months where they stated again and again and again how great that the concealed handgun license system was working. Oh yeah, right. it's it's it's
0: great now. Yeah, yeah, they they love it. In fact, even the opponents to this, you know, the the, the uh, moms demand action with their red shirts. We're talking about how great the licensing system is, and and then they, you know, they they're all for the Second Amendment. They're fine with people carrying baloney.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, and they, they 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 kept referring to it. The FOP especially with this hunk of dishonesty, they kept referring to the 2004 bill as a compromise. You know, they were an opponent of that bill, and they've been opponents of every single one after that. And so the FOP's hatchet job on law-abiding gun owners is a real shame because, you know, they've got their hands full. Police officers have their hands full. Crime is jumping off the charts right now, and too many liberals are out there trying to put handcuffs on them. And yet the FOP is out there making law-abiding gun owners the target, and I'm pretty disgusted with that particular aspect of this bill.
0: You know, I have a lot of police officer friends. Uh, There are police officers within BFA. Uh, I, I don't think there's an organization that could be more friendly to police officers on the street. Again, I want to point out, I don't believe that they are the ones opposed to this. That's right. Most of them are fine with citizens having firearms. It's the leadership. It's the union, particularly the Fraternal Order of Police. And they opposed every bill that we have ever
1: supported over all the years we've existed. Right. And, and, and ultimately, it was the FOP and the chiefs uh, and the prosecutors who presented the larger hurdle on this bill, Senate Bill 215, before it was done. Right, You knew every town for gun safety and the moms were going to say what they were going to say. But having the police organizations so virulently anti-gun is really disappointing. At the very
0: end, Rob, I think it's important to discuss uh, this point where at the very end, there were some lies being spread to House Republicans telling them that the amended bill were going to allow gun owners to be illegally searched. We got a lot of emails and questions about this saying, what's going on? Uh, You know, it sounds like police officers are going to be able to pull you over, take your guns search your car, they have no reason to do it, detain you, and the whole thing. All of this was a complete lie. That is not what was going on. And th- there was nothing added to the bill. There was actually something taken out, which was basically trying to reiterate something that was already in federal law. So there was a lot of confusion over this. The, 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 the issue was about Terry Stops, Yes. So this comes from a Supreme Court case back in 1968. So this is this has been established law for 54 years. Terry versus Ohio. The US Supreme Court had spelled out at that time that police officers must have a reasonable suspicion that a person is involved in a crime in order to stop, detain, or search you. So this language was sort of rewritten put into the bill, and it was causing a lot of problems with police officers because they were worried that there was going to be some misunderstanding that they could do something uh, or not do something that that they wanted to do because of Terry versus Ohio. So uh, my view is, uh, you know, this this wasn't really changing what could happen. It wasn't changing the law. It was just a matter of—there was confusion introduced because of this— so this language was taken out. It did not change Ohio law. It did not change federal law. Police did, were not given any additional powers. Citizens did not lose any rights. Current law remained exactly the same. And what a lot of people don't understand is you cannot pass a law at the state level and override a federal law. Again, this is, this is federal law for 54 years and it flows down to the state. Officers simply cannot Cannot stop you, detain you, or search you unless they have a reasonable and articulable if that's if that is that the right way you say that word a reasonable suspicion that uh, you are actually doing something
1: wrong or breaking a law right. and I, I think the other thing to know about the whole Terry stop controversy involved with the bill is that the FOP had seized upon that that the bill would stop them from being able to do their job to stop someone who was committing a crime. And it was a lie. That was a lie on their part. Uh, But it did uh, cause some problems with some of the members of the House Republican Caucus who, you know, they're doing their best to be both pro-gun and also pro-police officer. So the question is, does the language actually do anything? And to your point, federal law, is just well established. And so this didn't weaken the bill in any fashion, but it did remove an issue that, frankly, would have stopped that bill from getting out of committee. And as you pointed out earlier, you know, bills die in committee. And so we had to get the bill out of committee. The amendments that were done in the House Government Oversight Committee enabled the bill to come out uh, on an eight to five vote on March 1st, eight to five, completely party line. Five Democrats and eight Republicans, uh, which obviously uh, set up the vote on the floor. So, again, I just I just want to
0: remind our listeners that you know this this amendment, which was being really, and there were some outside parties uh, spreading a lot of rumors about this, trying to basically blow up the bill. You know, the, the police officers do not have any more power than they ever have had for half a century. Citizens do not give up any rights. Nothing changed. I mean, the, the language didn't belong in the bill anyway, and it was removed just to prevent the FOP from making their claim that, hey, this is going to prevent us from doing their job, which, you know, I, and they knew better. They knew that that was not true. So this basically just removed their opposition to something that was just frankly a lie. Right. And uh, I, I wish that language hadn't been in there anyway anyway. I understand why it was put in. It was just to reassure everybody about what the law already was. But it, and in the end, it caused more confusion than, uh, than was really necessary.
1: It did. It, and it, it caused the, the day of the floor vote in the House to be a very tense day. Uh, so you basically had two different factions, people lying about the bill. You had some of the FOP folks calling it anti-law enforcement and telling House Republicans that it was going to get cops killed. Uh, which we know is nonsense. Uh, And then, of course, you had some uh, who had decided that the Terry stop issue, you know, that the amendment had allowed the police to just stop anybody anytime they want just because they had a gun uh, or even take their gun. Uh, And so that had tremendous potential to just derail the bill uh, before it went to the House floor. So just like we've done all along, you know, BFA showed up right outside uh, where the House Republicans were planning to meet that morning to hash out that day's agenda. Uh, we laid out the facts one more time, and then we also delivered a really key message. I think this is important. Sometimes people who uh, wish to do you harm, they like to create such a fracas that it just derails everything, right? And then everybody can walk out and say, well, gosh, we just couldn't figure it out, right? So BFA sent a message in to House Republicans, and the message was basically this. If the ultimate result of this debate is that the House cannot pass Senate Bill 215, that gun owners will see that as a total failure. And I think ultimately that, that clarified things for a lot of the Republicans in the House. They understood that we expected there to be a vote, that we had come all this way, that we had uh, dealt with them in good faith. Um, and so, you know, as the House floor vote approached, uh, we felt confident that the votes would be there.
0: And, uh, Rob, you and some of our folks were actually standing outside the doors. You were talking to people as they were going into caucus. We were handing out flyers. We were sending them emails. I mean, uh, this was a full court press right at the end to make sure that all of this confusion uh, – you'd think that everyone would talk to each other down there, but it's like everywhere else in life. They don't always talk to each other, and they had misinformation – about the bill, all we were really trying to do is to clarify. Here's what the bill actually is, and here's what it does. Don't believe these rumors. That that's just not founded in fact. And, right. And that, I think that really helped because eventually everybody came around. They all got on the same page.
1: Yeah, they did, and and you know it's important to to call out your friends. You know sometimes as. Second Amendment activists, you know, we, we call out the ones that are always doing the bad stuff, but it's important to, cut, to sing the praises of your friends, too, right? And I mentioned earlier, the chairman of the committee, Shane Wilkin, um, I mean, he just took every sling, arrow, and bullet you can imagine as he tried to get this bill out of that committee. Uh, but he continued to commit that he was going to get the bill out of his committee, and he ultimately did. When they went into that caucus, Uh, You know, Shane Wilkin and uh, uh, Speaker Pro Tem, Tim Ginner, who we had met with, you know, more than a year previous committee member uh, like Bill Seitz, the majority leader, you know, they fought for the bill in that caucus. Uh, And then the last person in the House uh, that we really want to recognize is Speaker Bob Cupp. I think a lot of folks had questions when he was elected Speaker after Larry Householder, who had been so openly pro-gun. You know, Larry, of course, had a campaign commercial where he was shooting guns and the like. And so there was a question, you know, is is Bob Cup going to be strong for us? And so when Senate Bill 215 hit the uh, House floor and people began to throw out amendments to derail the bill, you know, universal background checks, for example, or red flag and stuff like that, uh, the Speaker shut him down and he shut down the entire process and brought it to a vote. And, of course, March 2nd, you know, fifty-eight thirty-six, 36 a good strong vote coming out of the House. So uh, I think, you know, we need to recognize Cup for uh, following through on the commitments that he made back in September of 2020 to send the bill back over to the Senate. And then where we are now, we have the bill that went through both chambers. I think it's
0: important to point out that there's no reconciliation. We got some uh, quote uh, some questions on this. That, you know, if you have different bills going through, you can sit down and kind of iron out the differences between the two and then goes to the governor. That's not the way it works in Ohio. There's no reconciliation. Any particular bill has to go through both chambers. So Senate Bill 215, a lot of people wondered, well, you've got this other bill that went through the House. This one went through the Senate. You know, why isn't it just going right to the governor? Well, because every bill has to go through both chambers. That's the way it works in Ohio. Every state's different, but this is how it works in Ohio. There is no reconciliation.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and again, so then back to the idea of, you know, recognizing our friends. Uh, so, you know, when the bill passed the House, there, there had been media reports that the Senate was going to sit on it for a few days while they evaluated the changes that the House had done. Ultimately, Senate President Matt Huffman Decided he wasn't going to sit around and, and be pounded on by people trying to kill the bill. Uh, and so instead, he, he brought it right to the Senate floor for a vote to agree with the House amendments. Uh, Senator Johnson, of course, championed that concurrence vote. And the Senate, you know, ultimately concurred, uh, uh, you know, uh, by a very strong margin uh, with the House changes, 24 to 9. And, and so that, that, you know, that's how we wound up getting the bill. Uh, heading to the governor. And then Dean, you know, I think we also want to recognize our partner uh, throughout this campaign, the National Rifle Association, you know, their in-state or their lobbyist for Ohio, John Weber, was integrally involved with us throughout the process. Um, It was about the most cooperative relationship that we would ever hope for. And I think we, we helped each other. We complimented each other, our organizations throughout the process. Yeah, and I you know, I don't want to get into the whole NRA debate. I,
0: you know, We all know that there's stuff in the news about that. The lobbying arm of the NRA is not the NRA proper. It's the NRAILA, the Institute for Legislative Action. That is a different group, and there's never been any— we'll just say that there's never been any controversy about that. Their lobbyists are all over the state— I hear people say, you know, where's the NRA? They're not. They're not working on this. They don't care. Whatever. That's not true. They are down at the state house. We're on the phone with them. We're working with them. We're testifying with them. We're meeting with them in the room. They just don't talk about that. They don't send out press releases or do stories about their lobbying efforts. They tend to just report the news. But I think it's important for our listeners to understand that the NRA has been there every step of the way on this bill and on other bills as well. And the, the, you know, the lobbyist John Weber has just been great to work with and he's really been an asset in getting this bill to the governor's desk. There's no doubt about it.
1: You know, uh, but the NRA and Buckeye have worked hand in hand. Uh, I, I think it is not an overstatement to say emphatically without our work together on that bill, Senate Bill 215 would not be sitting on Mike DeWine's desk right now. You know, as I said at the outset, it, it, it takes more than writing witty speeches in order to get a bill passed. And, and this one did. And um, I think we ought to probably, you know, wrap this up by talking about Governor DeWine. Right. Because I know a lot of folks have questions. Will he sign the bill? Well, this is what I what this is what I'll say. I, I think he's going to sign the bill. I think you agree with me on that, that he will sign the bill course, we won't know that till he does, but I will say this, he signed the repeal of duty to retreat and his people cited the fact that he had made a promise and that he felt like he needed to honor his promise. Well, he made a similar promise here and the work that we did, the work that Senator Johnson did, the work that Shane Wilkin did, he's got a clean bill on his desk It's not muddied up with other things that are unrelated to permitless carry. It is a clean license optional carry bill. And I believe that that would remove any reason that the governor could ever have for vetoing the bill. So I believe he'll sign it. Obviously, there's a few days left for him to do so. But ultimately, I think he will sign it. And I think it will put a close on what has been, for the most part, a pretty darn well executed campaign by everyone involved. So the one final thing that I want to talk about is, and I occasionally get a phone call from
0: John Lott. Everyone probably knows who John Lott is, the economist who does a lot of statistical research, and he tends to call me uh, late in the evening, 9 or 10 o'clock, and he'll ask about how things are going and if we need any help or whatever, and he has been very helpful in providing statistical information. The last time he contacted me, he was saying, you know, I'm really hoping you guys pass this in Ohio Because I think that we're reaching a tipping point where if we can get to about half of the states, where 50% of the states pass this, then the dominoes are really going to start to fall for all the other states, Ohio in particular, because Ohio is one of those states where if something works here, if it's acceptable here, it tends to be acceptable in a lot of other places. There are, you know, my background is marketing. I can tell you there are a lot of fast food uh, establishments that are based here in Ohio, and that's not an accident. They're based here because Ohio is kind of that middle ground. We're in the, we're in the Midwest. Uh, we have sort of middle-of-the-road tastes. If, you know, the fast food works here, it's probably going to work in most of the other country. If a bill like this works here, it's probably going to work in most of the other country. So it's important not just for us to get this bill signed and have it be law. It's important for every other gun owner everywhere in the country in every other state so, we're going to have an effect. If we get this signed, this is going to improve
1: the chances of every other state to improve their laws as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think as it was moving, it was even useful at helping other states move, right? So, I know, for example, that Indiana legislators were being told oh, Ohio's about to pass this thing. You know, like, wh- why not us? And of course we were playing the same card every chance we had, you know, but Ohio is definitely a bellwether state. It's the a state that people look to for opinion. So I think it definitely goes a long way toward, as you said, let's get over half, let's get more than half the states as constitutional carry states. Well, Rob, thanks for joining us on the
0: podcast and kind of walking us through this entire process again, that this has been a 20 year journey going from a state where you had a patchwork of laws where things were really crappy If you owned a gun and if you were just trying to protect yourself or compete or just do reloading or collecting or whatever you wanted to do, it used to be very, very difficult. And over the past two decades, things have changed significantly. It all started with that first carry bill with a license. And now here we are in 2022 on the verge of being able to carry without a license. That is a gigantic leap forward And, of course, we still have other things to do. We have other bills we're working on. But this has always been the brass ring. So, uh, Rob, thanks for all of your work as our legislative uh, director. And I'm just looking forward to this bill being signed, which literally, as we're recording this, it could literally be, be signed at any moment. And so I'm hoping that when people are listening to this, you will
1: already know that this bill has been
0: signed into law.
1: Dean, I appreciate it. I I think, as I said earlier, BFA volunteers have just never-say-die attitude. They just won't stay down. They won't take defeat lying down, and that's what enabled us to get where we are today. And like you, I'm looking forward to hearing the news that the bill has been signed. Okay, Rob. Well, thanks, and we'll see you again soon. All right. Thanks, Dean.
0: That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe, and please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's JoinBFA.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.